The U.S. Supreme Court today hears arguments on whether Donald Trump should be disqualified from Colorado's primary ballot. It's Thursday, February 8th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a U.S. airstrike kills a leader of an Iran-backed militia in Baghdad. Also this hour, Senate Republicans have blocked a bill to address the border crisis after pushing for such a measure for months. Why are the Republicans doing all this? Why have they backed off on border when they know it's the right thing to do? Two words, Donald Trump. Plus, China's heavy reliance on Red Sea shipping routes puts Beijing's hands-off approach to Houthi attacks on commercial ships in the spotlight. The Red Sea is part of their maritime lifeline. It is fundamentally important to the economic model Chinese leaders are pursuing. Mostly sunny and 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is meeting with families of Israeli hostages and with leading Israeli political figures. He's wrapping up his latest visit to the Middle East. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports from Tel Aviv. Blinken is still trying to push for a new hostage deal and a pause in fighting in Gaza. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Hamas is making some, quote, delusional proposals in the hostage negotiations. Secretary Blinken, though, says there is space for diplomacy. That was a message he brought to his meetings with Israeli officials today at the end of his trip. Of course, uh, focus on the hostages and uh, the strong uh, desire that we both have see them return home to uh, their families. He was speaking there alongside former Defense Minister Benny Gantz, who says he thinks a hostage deal is still possible. That's despite the public comments made by Netanyahu. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments today on whether Republican frontrunner Donald Trump can be disqualified from a state primary ballot. This stems from his effort to cling to power after losing the 2020 presidential election. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports the case could have national implications for Trump. The case comes from Colorado, but it's being closely watched by dozens of other state officials. The dispute revolves around part of the 14th Amendment designed to prevent Confederates from holding public office after the Civil War. Donald Trump says the law doesn't apply to him because he was not an officer of the United States since he was elected, not appointed. Colorado voters who sued to bounce Trump from the state ballot after the January 6 riot say the provision remains relevant to protect the country specifically from those who would seek to undermine democracy itself. The case puts the Supreme Court in the middle of this year's presidential race. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. A group of voters of color in a suburb of New York City has filed a lawsuit challenging a voting map under a state voting rights act. As NPR's Hansi Lo Wong reports, the New York lawsuit could have implications on legal protections against discrimination in voting around the country. Lisa Ortiz is one of the voters arguing that the map of voting districts for the Nassau County Legislature splits up many communities of color and combines them with predominantly white areas. Ortiz says that makes it hard for black, Latino, and Asian American voters to influence elections. Being grouped into a district that really has the power to silence our vote, it discourages people. This is the first lawsuit to challenge a voting map under a state-level Voting Rights Act. Legal experts say critics of those laws may try to appeal this case to the U.S. Supreme Court, where over the past decade, the conservative majority has been weakening the Federal Voting Rights Act. Anzi Luong, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News 
from Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. The Massachusetts Bar Association says it supports Governor Maura Healey's nominee to the state's highest court. The governor chose appeals court Judge Gabrielle Wolhosian for a seat on the state Supreme Judicial Court despite their past romantic relationship. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. Bar Association President Damian Turco says the past relationship between the governor and Judge Wolohosian should not be an issue in her nomination to the high court. I don't believe it causes any conflict or issue here necessarily. Wolohosian is an extremely qualified candidate on her own and the relationship ended years ago. The governor says Wolohosian was unanimously chosen by a committee that vetted candidates. Healy declined to say whether she had selected the judge from a list of potential nominees. The governor's counsel is expected to decide whether to approve Healy's nomination by the end of this month. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Gains in teacher diversity are not keeping up with the growing diversity of students in Massachusetts. The new study from researchers at Boston University and other institutions found that in 2022, about 18 percent of newly hired teachers were people of color. That's double the number from a decade earlier. But Massachusetts classrooms are projected to be majority students of color by 2030. Assistant Professor Olivia Chi worked on the research. She says recruiting more teachers of color would be a great benefit to students. Students who see teachers who look like them can have their teachers as a role model. And, you know, it's that it's the whole notion of if you see it, you can be it. She says policymakers should pay special attention to recruiting new teachers early in the pipeline. The Massachusetts Gaming Commission is outlining what kinds of wagers will be allowed for this weekend's Super Bowl. This is the first Super Bowl in which online bets are allowed in the state. Andrew Steffen is operations manager for the commission's sport wagering division. He described some of the wagers available to online users. Length of longest drive in yards, time of first possession in minutes. Will there be an onside kick? Will the opening kickoff be a touchback? And over time, will there be a safety? And I could go on and on, and we could be here all day listing all the types of prop bets available. Commissioners voted against authorizing bets on the coin toss, the Gatorade color, and the length of the national anthem. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the exhibition Bats. Visit a colony of live fruit bats on view now. Learn more at PEM.org. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com MOS. The Celtics outscored the Atlanta Hawks last night by eight points. Final score was 125 to 117. The Bruins are looking for a win against the Vancouver Canucks tonight. The teams hit the ice at the Garden at 7. Mostly sunny today with a high in the low 40s. Clouds move in tonight, bringing some patchy fog. Lows will be around 30 degrees. The fog sticks around through tomorrow's morning commute. Otherwise, it'll be mostly cloudy and warmer. Highs will reach the upper 40s. It's 30 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. Good morning. The United States asserts that it gained a measure of justice for an attack that killed three U.S. soldiers. A U.S. airstrike in Iraq killed a leader of a militia whose group the United States blamed for an attack on an American base. This is all part of a multinational conflict. Grab your maps. The Americans were killed at a base in Jordan. 
The militia leader was killed in Iraq. He was part of a group that's linked to Iran, which in turn has vowed to respond to the Israel-Hamas war. Numerous armed groups have opened fire throughout the region, and the latest incident led to a days-long U.S. response. NPR's Jane Araf joins us now from Baghdad to talk about all this. Hi, Jane. Hi, Leila. So what do we know about who was killed in this strike? Well, the militia Katab Hezbollah has confirmed it was one of its commanders. He was called Abu Bakr al-Sadi, and an interior ministry official says he was head of logistics for the Iran-backed group. Mm. The U.S., in confirming the strike, said al-Sadi had been directly involved in attacks on U.S. forces. A bit of confusion still here because initial reports from the interior ministry said three people were killed, and it's still not clear whether that was the case and whether there were other militia figures. This was a targeted strike, Layla, using an adapted Hellfire missile with a non-explosive warhead, mm. the kind used by the U.S. for counterterrorism operations in crowded areas, which this indeed was. The vehicle burst into flames on impact of the airstrike. Everyone in the car was killed, but there were no other casualties reported. So a targeted strike in Baghdad by the U.S., pretty dramatic. What's the mood in the capital this morning? Yeah, apprehension, really, and fear, and waiting for what comes next. And there are really not a lot of good scenarios here. It's a work day here, so people, in fact, did go to work. Shops are opening. It seems relatively normal. But this afternoon is the funeral ceremony in Baghdad for the commander who was killed. Some of the Iran-backed groups have called for protesters to gather near the U.S. Embassy, and in the past, those gatherings have sometimes turned violent. And some members of the anti-U.S. resistance coalition that Katab Hezbollah belonged to have called for new attacks against the United States. The Iraqi Hezbollah itself halted attacks in deference to the Iraqi government recently, but it could very well announce a resumption and that would signal a new wave of attacks from both sides. So it's possible that this escalates. I mean, let's talk about the wider repercussions, though, here. I mean, the U.S. and Iraq recently started talks on the future of American forces in that country. Does this killing impact those talks? I think it almost certainly does. An Iraqi military spokesman, Yahya Rasul, said these latest attacks were increasing pressure on the Iraqi government to essentially expel U.S. forces. Now, this wouldn't be an overnight process. It would be the result of talks and negotiations, as the U.S. is still an essential security partner. But after withdrawing after its invasion of Iraq and the occupation, troops came back here in 2014 to fight ISIS at the invitation of the Iraqi government. The U.S. views these recent attacks that it's launched as a response to being attacked by militias. But there's increasing anger in Parliament, in the streets, in the halls of government even, at violations of Iraqi sovereignty. And just really quickly, because this is a complicated but important part, these militias that are attacking and being attacked by the U.S., they actually have brigades that are part of Iraqi government security forces. NPR's Jane Araf in Baghdad. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Lena. Republicans in Congress have not had their most productive week. Some negotiated a bipartisan bill to address one of their top priorities, immigration. Other Republicans objected and said they did not want the bill that they wanted. The party leader Donald Trump had told them so. Those are not the droids you're looking for. Republican strategist Brendan Buck has been watching all this and joins us now. Good morning, sir. 
Hi, Steve. I, I just want to remind people of some basics here. Of course, the House and Senate leadership are different. Mitch McConnell is the Republican leader in the Senate. He was for this bill and then against it. Mike Johnson is the House Speaker. He never seemed eager for the immigration part of this at all. And I'll also remind people that you've worked for a couple of House Speakers and you know a lot of these guys. So what does this episode say about the party and its priorities? Well, you certainly have uh, party leaders who are, are struggling to get their footing. And, and you have an interesting dynamic where you have Mitch McConnell, who is uh, <clears throat> all but rumored to be on his way out at the, potentially at the end of this Congress and Mike Johnson coming in and trying to, to figure out how to do this job. The Senate is starting to feel a lot more like the House, where you have a bunch of more conservative senators who are frankly undermining their leadership at every turn and then and then turning around and saying, gosh, isn't our leadership bad? So it just feels like there isn't uh, enough um, respect and trust in leadership right now to to assert their will in the way that Mitch McConnell has been able to do for many, many years. Uh, I'm I'm wanting to, to, to argue with the labeling of conservative for some of the more conservative lawmakers. This bill that was rejected would seem from the outside to have a lot that you'd want if you're worried about border security, 1,500 more border agents, more courts so that people get asylum hearings a lot faster and get kicked out a lot faster if they shouldn't be here. A lot of things like that. Maybe things you don't like as much as well, but a lot. Did none of this interest Republican lawmakers at all? So I think what we're running into is the, the party being somewhat post-policy, if you will, where the policy almost doesn't matter. At least it comes in second to the politics. And we are in such a place where anything that is a compromise, anything that Chuck Schumer is for, is necessarily bad in the eyes of a lot of uh, Republican voters. And there's just been enormous blowback. And this issue is the most difficult one that I've dealt with in all my years in, in Congress was mm -hmm. anytime this issue came up, the activists got all riled up, mis misinformation was rampant, and it was a very difficult environment to do anything. I, I think a lot of these people understand that this is a major improvement in, in their policy goals, but they're just not worth taking the political risk, when, especially when you have someone like Donald Trump out there railing against it. Uh, Democrats now will say, in fact, are saying, this shows Republicans don't actually care about border security policies. I feel that you're telling me that is functionally true. There may be Republicans who care, but politically they can't afford to care. I think they care. They're just not willing to do anything that would potentially trigger a, a, a primary challenge or get them cross with their activists in their districts. This is why this issue never gets resolved is, frankly, there is no space for Republicans to do anything that would uh, that would include Democrat support as well. And so that's why when we tried this in 2006 and when we tried this in 2013 and 14 and when we tried this in 2017, yeah. it didn't work. And, and it, uh, this cycle will continue until the politics change. Okay, so let's ask about the other part of this. Democrats were willing to do some kind of compromise on immigration because they were hoping it would be combined with funding for Ukraine and get Republicans to sign on to funding for Ukraine, which some oppose. Do Republicans feel so strongly now against funding for Ukraine that there's really no deal they would ever accept to do that? I think there is still the possibility for this, and it's an important dynamic that I think people should appreciate. Mitch McConnell was for the border policy, probably because he supports it, but more likely because he wanted something on Ukraine and he thought that adding border provisions was the only way to get it. And now that the border policy seems to be dead, I think he is more than happy to pivot to what his real priority was, which was Ukraine. Now, Republicans are, are trying to sort out where they stand on this at the moment, and they're probably going to make some more demands along the way. But I do think that there is going to be 60 votes at some point in the Senate 
for Ukraine and Israel funding. The question then is, would, this, would the House ever even consider that? And I think Mike Johnson then would be under a lot of pressure. So we're a long way from success, but I do think McConnell will be able to pivot and get 60 votes for uh, a Ukraine package, which was his priority all along. I'm trying to figure out the heart of the Republican resistance to funding for Ukraine. And I know there's a lot of reasons, but if you tried to find a basic reason, is it just that Biden is for it, so they need to be against it? Is it that they think that Vladimir Putin is a great guy? Do they really think it's all being misspent? I mean, what is the bottom line here? There is a, has been and, and is a growing strain of isolationism in the Republican Party. Um, and Donald Trump, I think, seized on that, his, you know, his commentary on Iraq, uh, however inconsistent it may be. There are a lot of people in the Republican Party and, and base Republican voters who don't like the idea of sending U.S. taxpayer money abroad, period. Um, I still think that's a, a losing argument, um, but there are enough of those people, particularly the most vocal Republicans, who are going to make a big stink about it and put a lot of pressure on party leaders not to do anything on this. Republican strategist Brendan Buck, really appreciate your insights this morning. Yeah, thank you. The Super Bowl this weekend is the biggest day of the year for advertisers. You're playing like Betty White out there. That's not what your girlfriend said. No, we don't eat our own supply. Mr. White! Jesse. Everyone's going to want to taste. Samples of previous year's Super Bowl ads. And of course, we'll find out the new ones this Sunday. According to Paramount, which holds the rights to the game, a single 30-second commercial can cost the advertiser up to $7 million this year. Maria Rodas is a marketing professor at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. She's a big fan of Super Bowl ads. We talk during the game and absolutely not during the commercials because that's what I want to see. This is for me what the event is all about. Rodas says advertisers are hoping to create a moment that gets people talking. They're like mini movies. They hire these big celebrities. The production value is insane. And so all of a sudden, $7 million is probably like the smallest of what they spend compared to the rest that they put into creating these. All in trying to link their products to a feeling, an emotion. A story. To have this almost undivided attention provides an amazing opportunity for marketers to create a narrative, to really be able to connect at a much deeper level with consumers. A deeper level with consumers and a deeper level with their pockets. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with 90.9 WBUR. The Supreme Court hears arguments today about whether Colorado can ban Donald Trump from its primary ballot. We'll have live coverage of those arguments beginning at 945 this morning here on WBUR. We're also following news of search and rescue efforts for five U.S. Marines after their helicopter went down during stormy weather in the Southern California mountains. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, for the second time in a week, Republican voters in Nevada are being asked to weigh in on their pick for the GOP presidential nomination, this time in the state's caucus. It's 719. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, 
For nearly a century, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. And the listeners who support this NPR station. Hello, this is Simone Rios. I'm a reporter here at WBUR, and this is my daughter, Gabby. It was New Year's Eve of 2022, and Gabby showed up unexpectedly to a performance of mine in Boston's South End. On the spot, she agreed to get in front of the mic and sing this beautiful Uruguayan song called Inoportuna. On this Valentine's Day, I want to share this story of love and music with our WBUR family. Whether it's with our voices or with a bouquet of roses from Winston Flowers, this is the time when we can express our love for the people closest to us. And if you do choose flowers this Valentine's Day, consider sending them from WBUR to support our journalism and lift all our voices. Check out the offerings at WBUR.org. Mostly clear skies today. Highs will be in the mid-40s. Increasingly cloudy tonight. We'll have lows in the upper 20s with some patchy fog after midnight and into tomorrow morning. Then a mostly cloudy Friday. We'll have highs in the upper 40s. It's 31 degrees in Boston. Join us tonight at City Space for a conversation with former NPR host Michelle Norris about her new book, Our Hidden Conversations. Get tickets at WBUR.org events. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. From Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. And from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Fans of the band Alabama Shakes have learned to listen for this voice. Wow. It's the voice of Brittany Howard, whose group won numerous Grammy Awards. She continues experimenting with rock, soul, and more in her second solo album, What Now? Coming out Friday, here's Julie Height of Nashville Public Radio. Brittany Howard was 23 years old when the Alabama Shakes debut album sold half a million copies, considerably more than most new bands can hope for. The Shakes' 2015 follow-up took their rock, soul, and roots leanings to futuristic, otherworldly places and topped the Billboard 200. A dozen years later, Howard is still seeking musical ideas that are not quite like anything she's heard before. And she's found them, at least partly, at home. So right now we're in my studio in Nashville. In a detached garage with walls painted a vivid yellow. It is my favorite color of marigold. 
I have a beautiful old Italian couch in here. Lots and lots of rugs on the floor, upright bass, guitars everywhere you look, and lots of black religious art. Howard's living a radically different reality from her rural Alabama youth. I grew up on a farm in a junkyard, way off the road in the country, in a single wide trailer. She cooked at chain restaurants, bagged groceries, and delivered mail on remote back roads, all while devoting every possible minute to rehearsing with the Alabama Shakes. When their sound caught on around the world, she traded one kind of relentless labor for another. I was always working, 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 working. I had this fear within me that I would lose everything because I was somehow still stuck in the times where I couldn't even buy groceries or I didn't have lights on or I didn't have hot water. And I was always thinking, I don't want to go back there. I don't want to go back there. I'll do anything. And that ran me down. When the pandemic brought Howard's breakneck tour schedule to a standstill, she could focus on being creative. And she made impressively intricate demos with a combination of vintage gear and computers. Let me turn the rocket ship on. See if this will play for us. Howard never made her personal experience and perspective a focus of the Alabama Shakes, but that changed when she stepped out as a solo artist. Her first album under her own name, 2019's Jamie, invoked memories of her family facing racism and losing her older sister. All of that, along with her internalized fear of slipping back into poverty, moved her to start therapy and get into alternative medicine. Now, Howard's brought insights she gained to her songwriting and grown notably more introspective. I got to a certain age where I was like, I really want to unpack this stuff and work through it so I can just like feel better and be better. Howard was just singing nonsense lyrics in that initial blueprint for her album's title track, What Now? In the final version, she examines her role in the disintegration of a romantic relationship. She dares admit in this verse that she stuck around not to try and make it work, but to stay comfortable. This is my journal. This is how I took part in this situation. This is how I participated in breaking my own heart. Howard says that turning 35 last year freed her even more from what little worry she had about what people think. She's found herself venturing into styles she had not explored much before. House music, dream pop, avant-garde jazz. I'm splitting two. I don't know what I want to do. I'm splitting two. Should I stick with you? I don't know how I'm going to choose. I'm splitting two. On her new album, Howard even features the practitioners she'd gone to for alternative healing. That's where I was introduced to these crystal sound bowls and transcendental meditation to create space, like, in my head. 
They brought the singing bowls that she'd found so calming to a recording session in a historic Music Row studio. Now the bowl's crystalline tones cocooned her listeners between songs. And so I thought, well, these sound bowls can be the ground. They can connect everything. They can bring you back down to earth so I can take you somewhere else again, right? That's a window into how Brittany Howard's imagination works. No one places limits on it but her, and you never know where that might lead, which is why it's thrilling to follow along. She's always asking the question, what now? For NPR News, I'm Julie Hyde in Nashville. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. Despite a lawsuit by civil rights groups, a new Texas law is set to take effect next month, allowing local authorities to arrest people suspected of illegally crossing the border. It's 7.29. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Emerson with the legendary Seven Fingers Troops U.S. premiere of Dual Reality, February 7th through 18th at the Cutler Majestic. ArtsEmerson.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says securing the release of all hostages still being held by Hamas remains a top priority. We're intensely focused on the hostages and uh, determination to bring them home to their, their families. Blinken was speaking in Israel after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejected a proposal for an extended ceasefire with Hamas negotiated by the U.S., Egypt, and Qatar. Netanyahu described the plan as delusional for leaving Hamas in power in Gaza after the truce ends. Later this morning, the U.S. Supreme Court will examine whether former President Donald Trump's name can appear on Colorado's presidential primary ballot. In a 4-3 vote in December, the state Supreme Court decided Trump was ineligible. The justices cited Trump's actions leading up to the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol, deciding they amounted to insurrection. Here's NPR's Carrie Johnson. Donald Trump is making a bunch of arguments. First, he says the president is actually not an officer of the United States because he says presidents are elected and not appointed. And so he says that part of the 14th Amendment should not apply to him. Trump also says he did not engage in an insurrection on January 6th. He's also making the case that barring him from the ballot will open the floodgates. That's NPR's Carrie Johnson. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi.
The city of Newton is working to replace its city seal. The seal from 1865 depicts Reverend John Elliott preaching to a group of Native Americans. The calls to change the seal came from city residents. Hattie Kerwin Derrick works for the city and is part of the group creating a new seal. I hope it represents community input where we are today and into the future so that in the future, you know, it's something we can be proud of and say, oh, yeah, this is what, you know, this is Newton. This is our ideal. The city just hired an indigenous artist to design the new seal. Newton officials say they plan to slowly phase out use of the old seal over time to save money. A group of Charlestown residents are suing the city to block an affordable housing development. 100 units are planned for the site at the Navy Yard. That includes about 50 for formerly unhoused women and veterans. The Boston Globe reports the group says its concerns were not taken into consideration by the Boston Planning and Development Agency. It argues the project would overburden the neighborhood's local medical system. Starting at 8 this morning, the general public can start making summertime vehicle reservations on Steamship Authority ferries to and from Nantucket. WBUR's Fausto Menard has the details. The reservation system was supposed to open up late last month, but was delayed because of technical issues. Now that those are fixed, people traveling with a vehicle will be able to reserve a spot. Bookings can be made for trips between May 15th and October 20th. But you'll have to wait until next Wednesday, Valentine's Day, to make vehicle reservations to and from Martha's Vineyard. Phone and in-person reservations can be made starting February 20th. People visiting the islands without bringing a vehicle do not need reservations. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Maplewood Country Day Camp Southeastern Mass, where since 1965, their instructors have helped over 30,000 children learn to swim. MaplewoodYearRound.com. The Celtics are celebrating a win against Atlanta. They beat the Hawks by eight points. Final score was 125 to 117. The, Bru- the Bruins host the Vancouver Canucks tonight at the Garden. The teams hit the ice at seven. Highs in the mid 40s today under sunny skies. It falls to the upper 20s tonight and clouds and fog move in. Overnight, the fog may last through mid morning tomorrow, otherwise, mostly cloudy with highs near 50. It's 31 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Nevada votes today. Again. The state held a presidential primary on Tuesday, which was meaningless on the Republican side, because Nevada's delegates to the Republican convention are chosen instead by caucuses, face-to-face voting by the party faithful this evening. Donald Trump is expected to sweep that format. In fact, his chief rival, Nikki Haley, called the process rigged. So why is it this way? NPR's Ashley Lopez is in Las Vegas. Hey there, Ashley. Hey there. Okay, how did Nevada Republicans come to choose this process? 
Well, this was a decision made by the Nevada Republican Party, right? So political parties are private organizations, right? So they mostly get to decide how they're going to divvy up their delegates. Mm -hmm. And the Nevada GOP didn't like some recent changes to Nevada's election laws. So, you know, mostly they had a problem with expanded mail-in voting. And so they decided that they would hold a caucus election, you know, on their own, and they would have more control of the voting rules. This is how they came to this. Oh, this is really interesting because the Republican Party writ large has been trying to encourage mail-in voting again. But Donald Trump has raised suspicions about it. So Nevada Republicans go with the suspicions, go for this face-to-face voting. And it seems they have hardly more than one candidate to vote for. Yeah, and that's because the Nevada Republican Party set up a rule, right, that if any candidate runs in that state-run primary, which happened Tuesday, they would be disqualified from running in the caucus election today. And that's important because acquiring delegates is how a candidate wins the nomination, right? It's Mm -hmm. the only part of this that really matters. But because some of Trump's former and current challengers filed to run in the primary, they were automatically disqualified to run in the caucus. And so... Trump is one of the last men standing there. Why didn't Haley or the others just run in the caucus then? I mean, I think there was an effort early on among that larger field of GOP presidential candidates that we had you know, just a few months ago to cooperate with the state-run primary, right? And a lot of that was rooted in the fact that Donald Trump's campaign had a lot of influence over the state Republican Party in Nevada. In fact, in December, party leader Michael McDonald told attendees of a Trump rally in Reno that they should ignore the primary altogether and just go caucus for Trump. You don't need February 6th. That's for the Democrats. February 8th, you come out to your location. You walk in with your neighbors. You sit with your neighbors and tell them how great Donald Trump is. And then you cast your ballot for Donald J. Trump. Yeah, and I just want to take a moment to point out how weird this is. Usually state party leaders do not weigh in on primary elections like this because primaries are intra-party, right? Like they're all on the same team. So out of the gate, this was a really strange situation in Nevada for the other candidates running. And I should also say that the man we just heard from, Michael McDonald, has been in some legal trouble for his involvement in the Trump campaign's fake elector scheme in 2020, just to give you a sense of how closely aligned the Nevada party is to Donald Trump. Okay, so not much suspense tonight, but what will happen? Yeah, I mean, I'm not expecting this to be anything short of an overwhelming win for Trump. The only other candidate on the ballot will be this long shot candidate, Ryan Binkley, who's a businessman from Texas. But, you know, I'm going to be curious to see how many voters actually show up to elections. For one, caucuses are notorious for having lower voter participation. And I think the fact that there was all this confusion created by having both a primary and a caucus this week could also affect turnout. But we'll see. NPR's Ashley Lopez is in Las Vegas. Ashley, enjoy. Yeah, I will. The U.S. and its allies have been launching strikes against Houthi targets to try to stop the militants' attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea, although the Houthis remain defiant. Noticeably missing in the coalition is China. Despite its economic reliance on the Red Sea, it's sitting on the sidelines of the crisis. NPR International Affairs correspondent Jackie Northam reports. The Red Sea is one of the world's most important shipping routes. China, in particular, depends heavily on the waterway for its commercial ships to move goods from Asia to Europe. The Red Sea is part of what Chinese analysts call their maritime lifeline. It is fundamentally important to the economic and political model that Chinese leaders are pursuing. Isaac Carden is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, focusing on Chinese maritime affairs. 
He says despite four months of attacks by Iranian-backed Houthis that have upended global trade, Beijing has stayed mute on the crisis. We have not seen China do or say anything especially forceful on this issue, despite the extreme risk to maritime trade that's so essential to China. Beijing has been trying to enhance its influence in the Middle East for many years, and it does have some leverage in the region. It buys the majority of crude oil exports from Iran, says Neil Thomas, a fellow on Chinese politics at the Asia Society's Center for China Analysis. There are reports that China has lobbied Iranian officials to curb the activities of Houthi rebels in the Red Sea and suggested that it would be in China and Iran's interests if these attacks ceased or at least subsided. But it doesn't seem like that has necessarily fully paid off yet. Dr. Yu Jie is a senior research fellow on China at Chatham House, a foreign policy think tank based in London. She says Beijing's strategy for the Middle East is in line with its approach to other global conflicts. That is to say, never taking a side, do not get involved in the domestic affairs of another particular country. So I think on the one hand, yes, China has somehow has a very strong economic interest to restrain Iran. But then on the other hand, I think there's the so-called non-interference principle that really make Beijing hold it back. China's low-key approach has led some critics to call it a free rider. Its ships are passing through the Red Sea under the protection of the U.S. coalition. But when conflict began, it stayed quiet. Cardin with the Carnegie Institute says it's a reality check to what kind of global power China aspires to be. It's definitely a seminal moment for China staking out a role as a great power player in the Middle East. And yet, when the region is in turmoil, they are pretty passive. They're sitting around watching the United States perform this protection of free navigation that China depends on. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan prodded senior Chinese officials to join the coalition to battle the Houthis. China has been building up its Blue Water Navy and has a military base in Djibouti. But it's also got economic woes back home. Thomas, with the Asia Society, says Beijing just simply isn't interested in military involvement in the Red Sea. So far, it's focused a lot more on the economic side of that ledger than on the security side, basically because the economic side is China's strength. But if world trade continues to suffer because of the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea, analysts say China may finally be compelled to step in and help resolve the crisis. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, we preview arguments before the Supreme Court today about Colorado's decision to disqualify former President Donald Trump from the state's primary ballot. And a reminder, live coverage of those arguments begins at 945 this morning on 90.9 WBUR. Mostly sunny in mid-40s today, increasing clouds in upper 30s tonight, fog to start tomorrow. It'll be mostly cloudy with a high near 50. It's 32 degrees in Boston. 
WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. And Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. The president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston is not ready to support rolling back interest rates just yet. Susan Collins says she first wants to see consumer demand grow at a more moderate rate this year. She said she expects that to happen, but the timing of the slowdown is hard to predict. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell says he wants to see inflation continue to fall toward 2 percent before reducing borrowing costs. UMass Lowell is establishing a new electronics lab to train students to manufacture printed circuit boards. A UMass smoke spokeswoman says the global market for those boards reached over $86 billion last year. The school estimates there are currently 2,400 vacant jobs in electronics manufacturing in the state. Boston has some of the best hotels in the U.S. That's according to a new report from U.S. News & World Report. 15 Beacon, Mandarin Oriental, and Boston Harbor, Harbor Hotel all made it on the list of 50 best hotels in the U.S. Twin Farms in Vermont also made it on the list. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org and from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Next month, Texas begins its latest effort to supplant the federal government. A state law moves Texas into immigration policy, traditionally a federal job. It empowers law enforcement in that state to arrest people who are suspected of crossing the border illegally. They can be detained on state charges instead of being turned over to federal border officials who often release asylum seekers until their court dates. But as the state prepares to push aside federal authority, some local sheriffs say they cannot follow the lead of the state. Marfa Public Radio's Travis Bubinick reports. A Border Patrol agent comes on the radio in Terrell County Sheriff Thaddeus Cleveland's truck as he heads down a rocky desert road with sweeping views of the southern border in Mexico in the distance. From here, I mean, you, you can see 100 miles to the east and 100 miles to the west and 100 miles to the south. Down at the border, Cleveland hops out of his truck and points out a common spot where people cross the Rio Grande here in the rugged, mountainous Big Bend region of West Texas. They'll walk down in that canyon and then they'll down along the river come up. Cleveland, a former Border Patrol agent himself, says he supports the new law making illegal border crossings a misdemeanor state crime and a felony for a repeat offense. But he says he won't be arresting migrants. We don't have the resources to jail or house people where I can just easily turn them over to Border Patrol. 
This far-flung desert region of West Texas sees much fewer migrant crossings than South Texas, where tens of thousands of people regularly cross a month. Cleveland argues the new law is more aimed at those parts of the border, but sheriffs across the Texas border, from El Paso to Eagle Pass, the recent epicenter of migrant crossings, say their communities aren't equipped to handle the new law. Ronnie Dotson is the sheriff in the Big Bend's Brewster County. My problem is, in our area, is we don't have no place to put them. He says the cost of jailing and feeding people arrested under the law could quickly add up. I mean, even if we arrest them and put them in jail, most of these folks ain't never going to be able to pay a fine. I worry about the burden it's going to put on these counties. That's also a concern next door in Presidio County. We don't have a lot of money. Joe Portillo is the county's top elected official. Once you take someone into custody, it does have a fiscal cost. They need to eat. God forbid one of them needs a doctor. There will be an added cost to the county. Texas officials have allowed local governments to apply for some of a $1.5 billion pot of new state border security funding. But it's not clear how much of that will actually go to offsetting the costs of enforcing the new law. There's some concern among law enforcement about how much leeway they'll have on arresting migrants. A few years ago, lawmakers here banned immigration sanctuary cities and allowed the state attorney general to sue local officials who block the enforcement of certain immigration laws. Skylar Hearn heads the Sheriff's Association of Texas. The way it's written, it applies to immigration law enforcement. And so if you take a stance on this law, should it go into effect of saying, I'm not going to do it? then potentially a county could open themselves up to that kind of action from the AG. Back on the banks of the Rio Grande, Sheriff Cleveland says the new law won't change his day-to-day much. If I encounter somebody um, that's crossed our border illegally, then first thing I'll do will be give Border Patrol a call. So while Texas leaders continue to assert more authority over the border than ever, some sheriffs, at least in the state's rural border areas, say they'll leave the job of immigration enforcement to the feds. For NPR News, I'm Travis Bubinick in Marfa, Texas. This is NPR News. It's a Thursday on WBOR. Coming up at 8.20 here on Morning Edition, six months after a firestorm destroyed much of Maui, people there are still struggling to recover, and there's tension as tourists begin to return to the area. It's 7.49. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that have a meaningful impact across our community. I'm Lisa Mullins. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England and your support will bring you stories that matter to you. Order by midnight tomorrow to save 10% on all four choices, including two dozen long-stemmed red roses. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. The U.S. Supreme Court today hears arguments over whether Donald Trump can be disqualified from Colorado's primary ballot. Senate Republicans have blocked a bill addressing the border crisis despite pushing for a measure for months. And military officials are looking for five Marines after their helicopter went down in stormy weather in California earlier this week. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. 
Mid-40s and mostly sunny today, near 30 tonight, and it'll grow increasingly cloudy and foggy. Foggy to start tomorrow, then mostly cloudy and near 50. It's 32 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. Good morning. Retaliation may seem like antisocial behavior, but can it have some positive outcomes? Some researchers went looking for answers from a unique group of subjects. Planet Money's Mary Childs has the story. I saw this economic study recently that felt like it was trying to give me life advice. Maybe counterintuitive life advice, but... If the research is robust, I'm interested. So I called one of the researchers, Siri Isaacson. She's an assistant professor at the Norwegian School of Economics. Retaliation is very, very important, and it's something that's part of so many different interactions. But at the same time, it's very hard to quantify. Retaliation, basically seeking revenge. It's really hard to study because the real-life situations in which a person might seek revenge are so messy. But Isaacson's co-author thought of this game show in Sweden. It's on SVT. It's called Vem Viet Mest, which means who knows most. And this show happens to be ideal for studying retaliation. First, there's a ton of potential data points because it had been on basically every weeknight since 2008. And the way it was structured had this one part that made contestants essentially choose to retaliate or not. So the first question is thrown out by the game show host who randomly picks someone. Stefan. And then basically, if you answer correctly, now you earn the right to throw this question to someone else. Which is an opportunity to knock out one of your opponents. So for the purposes of their study, Isaacson and her co-authors defined throwing a question to someone as an act of aggression. And then the researchers watched for what contestants did next. What happens is I answer correctly and I throw it directly back at you, right? That's what we define as a direct retaliation. So that is me showing toughness to the whole crowd. And I've shown them then that don't throw these questions at me because I'm going to throw them right back. And the researchers found this move, throwing it right back, is effective. When contestants retaliated, they lowered the probability of getting future questions, thereby increasing their odds of success. There was something in this finding that made it even more interesting. When we look at do people use this opportunity to retaliate once they're attacked, men do it 20% of the time. And women do it five percentage points less, so about 15% of the time, which is, a, I would say, a huge effect. That is huge. Men were using this effective strategy a lot more than women were. However, and this is quite fascinating, what you see is that women retaliate much less than men. But those women who do, in fact, retaliate, the effect, the warding off effect on future attacks for those women is twice as large as it is for the men who retaliate. Whoa. So that's quite interesting. So they learned retaliation is effective, men retaliate more than women, and women who do retaliate get even more bang for their buck. But Isaacson cautions against extrapolating too much from this. Do you recommend retaliation outside of this game show? So I think that's a very good question, and I think more (laughs) research is needed for this. 
because just issuing an edict from a finding like this is not the best idea. Isaacson cited this study on women negotiating their salaries. Typically, women negotiate less, so the researchers pushed women to act more like men. And those women who were pushed into negotiating more ended up worse off. We cannot say that if these women would just do things this way, that the same thing would happen. Because the women who are retaliating, the women who are negotiating, they might be different. They might be the Sheryl Sandbergs of the world and that what works for Sheryl isn't going to work for me. Exactly, exactly. It depends on who you are, right? So maybe it's like, if you think you're bad at revenge, don't force yourself. But otherwise, I don't know, maybe give it a try. Smite your enemies. Mary Childs, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Charles Schwab, offering investors choices like full-service wealth management, advice, investing, and trading on Thinkorswim. Learn more at schwab.com. One of the wild men of rock and roll has died. Mojo Nixon fused the fire of punk with the twang of rockabilly and the stage presence of an agitated carnival barker. He was a hit on college radio in the 1980s and 90s with a series of novelty songs like this one. Debbie Gibson is pregnant with my two-headed love child. Debbie Gibson is with my two-headed love child. It's a Bigfoot baby, all covered in now. Nixon's greatest successes came when he served as a provocateur. He berated a rock legend's solo output with this song, Don Henley Must Die. Luckily for Nixon, Don Henley had a sense of humor about it. He once joined Nixon on stage to perform the song with him. Nixon told the Austin Chronicle, quote, I was surprised he was so magnanimous and that he didn't punch me. (laughs) Now, Mr. Nixon was born Neil Kirby McMillan Jr. in North Carolina. He eventually moved to San Diego, where he became part of a duo, Mojo Nixon and Skid Roper. Nixon told NPR in 1989 that becoming a rock star was about his only career option. I really couldn't do anything else. Like I went to college and I was supposed to go to law school and all this stuff and I tried doing that and I just derailed. It just, you know, this is just one way to keep me uh, out of prison, I think. His biggest hit was fueled by MTV exposure in 1987 and it was a tribute to a kindred spirit. When I look out into your eyes out there, when I look out into your faces, you know what I see? I see a little bit of Elvis in each and every one of you out there. Let me tell you, when Elvis is everywhere, Elvis is everything, Elvis is everybody, A little bit of country preacher in that delivery. Rolling Stone magazine reports that Mojo Nixon suffered a cardiac event and died yesterday aboard the Outlaw Country Cruise, which is an annual music cruise that he co-hosted and where he performed. He was 66. His family said in a statement, quote, since Elvis is everywhere, we know he was waiting for him in the alley out back. Say Elvis, heal me. Save me, Elvis. Make me be born again in the perfect Elvis light. That's right. You got that Elvis inside of you and he's talking to you. He says he wants you to sing. Everybody got to sing like the king. That's how I think of this job. One more way to keep me out of prison. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Layla Falden. 
Clear skies in mid-40s today. Clouds move in tonight as it falls to around 30. Our Friday starts out foggy. Then it'll be mostly cloudy and near 50. It's 32 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. And The Huntington with John Proctor as the villain, a touching and bitingly funny new comedy, now through March 10th at the Huntington Calderwood Pavilion, HuntingtonTheater.org. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. Supreme Court today takes up Donald Trump's appeal of Colorado's decision to bar him from its primary ballot. It's Thursday, February 8th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Nevada's Republican Presidential Caucus today may showcase the growing influence of Latino voters. We will be the first state to become a majority of minorities in just a couple of years, and the Hispanic bloc will be by far the largest. Also this hour, ahead of the presidential election, many states are taking steps to regulate AI-generated deepfakes. We're seeing bipartisan support to recognize there is no partisan interest in being subjected to deepfake fraud. Plus, officials in Pakistan have shut down internet services despite promising not to as millions head to the polls in high-stakes elections. Mostly sunny in 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments today on whether Donald Trump can be disqualified from Colorado's primary ballot. The Colorado Supreme Court removed him. The state judges cited the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and said Trump's actions around January 6th amounted to insurrection. Georgetown Law Professor Michelle Goodwin says Trump has several defenses against this argument. Um, amongst those of his senses is that he should, in fact, be on the ballot and the voters of Colorado should be able to decide whether they want to vote for him or not. But the rules of elections are left to states. There isn't a federal law that says this is how states must organize their elections and all in a uniform type of way, which makes it a bit thorny for Donald Trump. The Supreme Court's decision about Trump's appearance on the Colorado ballot will be watched closely by other states. The CEOs of three major drug companies will appear before a Senate committee today. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports lawmakers are expected to grill them about the high cost of prescription drugs in the U.S. Independent Senator Bernie Sanders has called out the pharmaceutical companies for charging more for prescription drugs in the U.S. than in any other country. Sanders released a report this week that singles out drug makers Johnson & Johnson, Merck, and Bristol-Myers Squibb. The findings show that J&J and BMS each spent $3.2 billion more on stock buybacks, dividends, and executive compensation than they did on research and development. The report also compared drug prices in the U.S. with other countries. The list includes the diabetes drug Genuvia, which costs $6,900 in the U.S. compared to $200 in France. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, 
Washington. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is wrapping up his latest Mideast trip. He's seeking a hostage deal and a potential pause in fighting in Gaza. The U.S. military killed a militia commander in Iraq yesterday. He led one of the most powerful Iranian-backed militias in Iraq. The airstrike is the latest between the U.S. and Iraqi militias. And NPR's Jane Araf reports from Baghdad it's expected to have repercussions. The airstrike on a vehicle in a crowded Baghdad neighborhood killed a commander of Kitab Hezbollah. Militia statements named him as Bakr al-Saidi. He was believed to be the group's head of logistics. Security forces closed roads leading to the U.S. Embassy and put in place more forces in anticipation of anti-U.S. protests, which have turned violent in the past. Some politicians said the attack further shows the need for U.S. forces to leave Iraq. Jane Araf, NPR News, Baghdad. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Boston Public Schools superintendent is out with her initial budget proposal. The $1.5 billion plan includes a new $81 million from the city. WBUR's Carrie Young reports. More than half of that new funding would cover inflation-driven cost increases for services like transportation, food, and maintenance. BPS also plans to spend more than $30 million to expand inclusive learning opportunities for students with disabilities and kids learning English. Superintendent Mary Skipper says she's hopeful for what this initial proposal covers. I think budgets are value statements. I think they're the opportunity to create the blueprint for the organization and to get done for the kids and the families what we need to. The proposal also accounts for the fact that federal pandemic relief funding will run out in September. The Boston School Committee will take a final vote on the budget on March 27th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. At least one member of the board that approves judges to the state's highest court is raising concerns about Governor Moore Healey's recent nominee. Healey chose Gabrielle Willahosian for a Supreme Judicial Court post yesterday. Willahosian has served on the state appeals court for 16 years. She's also Healey's former long-term romantic partner. Tara Jacobs serves on the governor's council. She says that the court frequently hears cases based on the governor's policies and believes that could raise a conflict of interest. For the SEC, which only has seven sitting members, what impact will that have on their work and their burden if there is a member who frequently has to recuse themselves? Governor Healy calls Wilhojan the most qualified person for the job. A newly opened emergency shelter in Roxbury is reaching capacity. The temporary shelter at Melnia Cass Recreation Center can house up to 400 people. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu told the local podcast Java with Jimmy that community programs have been relocated while the shelter operates. The state opened the site to house migrants previously sleeping at Logan Airport. A traffic lane in Brookline Village will soon be designated for buses only. The so-called Gateway East Bus Priority Lane is meant to streamline trips for the 60, 65, and 66 MBTA bus lines. Local transit leaders tell the Brookline News the lane will be painted with no added infrastructure. It's expected to open in the coming months. It's 8.06. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. 
The Celtics ended the night with an eight-point win against Atlanta. Final score was 125-117. to The Bruins skate at home against the Vancouver Canucks tonight. Puck drops at 7. Mostly sunny today with a high in the mid-40s. Clouds move in tonight, bringing some patchy fog. Lows will be around 30. The fog sticks around through tomorrow's morning commute. Otherwise, it'll be mostly cloudy and warmer. Highs will reach the upper 40s. It's 32 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Coming up, how much can we really do to guard elections against artificial intelligence deepfakes? First, we face the question of who's entitled to a place in the presidential ballot this year. The Supreme Court hears a case today that affects the state of Colorado and potentially many more. The justices consider whether, under the Constitution, Colorado was right to disqualify Republican frontrunner Donald Trump for his effort to overturn the 2020 election that he lost. NPR's Carrie Johnson reports. Norma Anderson watched intruders storm the U.S. Capitol on TV from her home in Colorado. They're trying to overthrow the government, is what I was thinking. And where is the National Guard? Anderson is a Republican, the first woman to lead the Colorado House of Representatives and later the state Senate. Soon, she may occupy another place in the history books as lead plaintiff in a case seeking to disqualify Donald Trump from the Republican Party ballot in Colorado. Anderson, who's 91 years old, says the case is her way of protecting democracy. You have to remember, as old as I am, (laughs) I was born in the Great Depression. I've lived through that, World War II. I remember Hitler. I remember My cousin was with Eisenhower when they opened up the concentration camps. I had another cousin start in Africa and go all the way through to Germany. I mean, I understand protecting democracy. Anderson and five other Colorado voters are relying on part of the 14th Amendment passed after the Civil War to keep Confederates out of office. Jason Murray is their lawyer. He says the 14th Amendment remains relevant. Those who drafted Section 3 of the 14th Amendment back in the 1860s were very clear that they understood this provision not just to cover former Confederates, but that it would stand as a shield to protect our Constitution for all time going forward. And so this is not some dusty relic. This provision has been used to disqualify candidates only eight times since the 1860s. Most recently, two years ago, in the case of a county commissioner from New Mexico who trespassed at the Capitol on January 6th. It's never been used against a presidential candidate. But Murray says there's a reason to revive dormant language in the Constitution now in this case. No other American president has refused to peacefully hand over the reins of power after losing an election. The language in the so-called insurrection clause is simple. Anyone who engages in insurrection after taking an oath to support the Constitution is barred from holding public office unless two-thirds of Congress votes to grant that person amnesty. If the U.S. Supreme Court allows these doors to open, what we're going to see is a constant stream of litigation. That's Scott Gessler. He served as a Republican Secretary of State in Colorado, and he now works as a lawyer for Donald Trump. You're going to see attacks on President Biden. You're going to see attacks on Kamala Harris, Vice President Harris. You're going to see attacks on senators and representatives and other people trying to prevent them from being on the ballot. 
In court papers, Trump's legal team has been arguing that part of the 14th Amendment doesn't apply to the president because he was not an officer of the United States since he was elected, not appointed. They say Trump did not engage in insurrection on January 6th, and they say Congress needs to pass a law that answers questions about how to enforce that part of the Constitution. Again, Scott Gessler. And we have no guidance from Congress on what the proper standards are, what the proper burden of proof is, what insurrection means. The case puts the Supreme Court in the middle of the presidential election for the first time since it stopped the Florida recount and handed the White House to George W. Bush in 2000. This time, the justices have a few options. They could decide to disqualify Trump, just like the highest court in Colorado did last December. They could decide this is a political question, one for lawmakers and voters to answer, not the courts. Or they could keep Trump on the ballot, as he and dozens of Republicans in Congress are asking. Not providing a clear answer before the November election or the certification in January could confuse or disenfranchise voters. Rick Hassan is a professor of law and political science at UCLA. So when you have such divided opinion and you have a, such a volatile situation, it's just better to have some certainty about this issue as soon as possible. Hassan and two other election law experts wrote the justices to say a decision by the court not to decide could place the nation in great peril. We think that it creates conditions for great political instability if the court leaves this issue open. Jason Murray, who's arguing on behalf of the Colorado voters, also sees danger ahead, but from Trump. If you read Trump's brief, he has a not-so-subtle threat to the court and to the country that if he loses this case, there's going to be bedlam all over the country. And I take that as Trump once again trying to hold this country hostage. And I don't think the country should stand for it. On the campaign trail in New Hampshire last month, Trump said he named three of the six conservative justices on the U.S. Supreme Court. Then he mused about what they might do and why. They want to show that they can't be bought, that the fact that you put them there and made their lives, took them from someplace where they were doing quite well. But you know what? They want to go out of their way to be politically correct. The Supreme Court hasn't offered a timetable for its decision, but some legal experts think the justices could rule before the Super Tuesday primaries in early March. The question about Trump's disqualification in Colorado is playing out in different ways in other states, too. Hassan of UCLA thinks Chief Justice John Roberts will be working hard to avoid a sharp conservative and liberal split. Unanimity, of course, would be best, but finding some way of reaching something where you bring in not just the Republican-appointed justices, but at least some of the Democratic-appointed justices, I think is behind the scenes going to be among the most important things. One way, he says, might be to find that the key part of the 14th Amendment requires Congress to pass a new law before it can be used. I don't think that's a strong legal argument, but it's a very nice off-ramp if you're looking for one. It avoids the merits, and it kicks it to another body, and it keeps Trump on the ballot. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. It's easier than ever to use artificial intelligence to create realistic but fake 
images, video, and audio depicting things that never happened. AI-generated deepfakes are already being used to spread false information in elections in the U.S. and around the world. NPR's Shannon Bond reports policymakers, tech companies, and governments are trying to catch up. A suspicious robocall thousands of New Hampshire voters received on the eve of the state's primary last month sounded like President Biden. What a bunch of malarkey. But the message didn't make sense. The voice was supposedly urging Democrats not to vote in the primary. Your vote makes a difference in November, not this Tuesday. It turns out it wasn't Biden. It was a voice generated by artificial intelligence. New Hampshire's attorney general is investigating the call for voter suppression. This week, he said a Texas telemarketing company was responsible for it. Faking a robocall is not new. But making a persuasive hoax has gotten easier, faster, and cheaper thanks to AI, says Dan Wiener, director of the Elections and Government Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. We don't really think of it as a freestanding threat, but as more of a threat amplifier. He worries AI will turbocharge efforts to discourage voters or spread bogus claims, especially in the immediate run-up to an election when there's little time to fact-check or debunk. That's what appears to have happened last fall in Slovakia, just days before voters went to the polls. Faked audio seeming to show one candidate discussing rigging votes and raising the cost of beer started spreading online. His pro-Western party ended up losing to one led by a pro-Russian politician. Wiener says the stakes were high and the deepfake came at a critical moment. You know, there is a plausible case that that really did impact the outcome. While high-profile fakes like the Biden robocall get a lot of attention, Josh Lawson worries more about AI being used for personalized targeting. He's a former election lawyer who now works at the Aspen Institute. We are quickly advancing towards a point in the technology, likely before the election itself, when you can have real-time synthetic audio conversations. Like calling up a voter and giving false information about their specific polling place, and then doing the same thing in multiple languages. Deceiving voters, including spreading false information about when and where to vote, is already illegal in the U.S. But growing concerns about other ways deepfakes could warp elections are driving a raft of new legislation. Bills have been introduced in Congress, but experts say states are moving faster. In the first six weeks of this year, lawmakers in 27 states have introduced bills to regulate deepfakes in elections, according to the progressive advocacy group Public Citizen. Robert Weissman is the group's president. We're seeing bipartisan support to recognize there is no partisan interest in being subjected to deepfake fraud. Many of these bills focus on transparency, mandating campaigns and candidates put disclaimers on AI-generated media. Other measures would bar deepfakes within a certain window, say 60 or 90 days before an election. Still others take aim specifically at AI-generated content in political ads. Tech companies are weighing in, too. Meta, YouTube, and TikTok have begun requiring people to disclose when they use AI content and are introducing made-by-AI labels. Lawson says it's all a good start but won't stop determined bad actors. He says we have to adapt voters, platforms, campaigns, lawmakers, and create not just laws, but social norms around the use of deepfakes. We need to get to a place where things like deepfakes are looked at almost like spam. They're annoying, they happen, but they don't ruin our day. He says the question is, will we be there by the time people start casting their votes? Shannon Bond, NPR News.
This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with WBUR. The Supreme Court hears arguments this morning about whether Colorado can ban Donald Trump from its primary ballot. We'll have live coverage of that beginning at 945 here on WBUR. We're also following news of search and rescue efforts for five U.S. Marines after their helicopter went down during stormy weather in the Southern California mountains. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, millions of Pakistanis are heading to the polls today to cast votes in federal and state elections. But analysts say the outcome is unlikely to reflect the will of the people. It's 819. Growing up as an immigrant, I often felt like there were these two competing ideas of romantic love, or what it should be. There's this classic falling in love at first sight in pop culture. And then there's this, quote, more practical version that says, love will grow with time as long as your values align. The two ideas felt at odds to a younger me, but the slightly wiser me, the journalist me, knows there's more than one way to understand big, complex ideas. I'm Yasmin Ammer, and I'm the executive producer for WBUR's Radio Boston. We want to keep bringing you new perspectives and tell stories that deepen our understanding of one another. Help us do that. Show your love by sending Winston Flowers from WBUR. Visit WBUR.org to choose the perfect gift. Mostly clear skies today. Highs will be in the mid-40s. Increasingly cloudy tonight. We'll have lows in the upper 20s with some patchy fog after midnight and into tomorrow morning. Then a mostly cloudy Friday. We'll have highs in the upper 40s. It's 32 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. It's been six months since wildfires swept Maui, killing 100 people and destroying the town of Lahaina. Now the people are trying to revive the tourism-centered economy in nearly impossible circumstances. NPR's Debbie Elliott reports. It's peak whale watching season on Maui, and a dawn voyage on the ultimate whale watch tour is mostly booked. Good morning! Good morning! Hi guys, I'm Sarah. Nice to meet you. We're going to go find some whales together. Tour guide Sarah Haycan has some new talking points since the wildfires. We had some experiences in August here. We experienced some great loss personally. So we want to keep the topic on whales today. We are very grateful to be able to be out here with you guys and have some normalcy back in our lives. Are you excited? All right, let's do it. Visitors scan the horizon for the humpbacks as the boat heads out into the Pacific Ocean. 
I think there's a whale. My name is Lee James, and we're here at Mala Boatyard in Lahaina, Maui. James is the owner of Ultimate Whale Watch and says he's happy to put Sarah and others back to work after being out of business for about four months. When people come back to work, part of that weight is lifted, and then you get on the water, and it's just energizing, and then you can laugh again. It's good to see that. Four of his five boats were damaged or destroyed in the fires. He's operating two of them now and doing less than half the business he had before the fires and employing far fewer people. He's taking things a day at a time. Six months ago, we were like, are we going to be able to stay on the island? It's such a fluid and dynamic situation. And it's been that way since Maui reopened to tourists in October. More than 800 businesses operated in the disaster area, providing work for about 7,000 people. Local advisors to Maui's mayor estimate about a third of that commerce is back at the six-month mark. Snay Patel is president of the Lahaina Town Action Committee and also serves on the state's Economic Recovery Commission. The stress right now in the community is we just can't go back to the way things were. Patel says commercial rents are going up because of a shortage of space. And with the trauma so fresh and a lack of long-term housing for Lahaina, the workforce is unstable. They're perhaps not even ready to go back considering they could have lost a family, mental health. I mean, there's so many issues that you know arise from an event like this. Patel, who's also sales director at a resort rental company, anticipates a 30 to 40 percent drop in visitors to the area around Lahaina as the region rebuilds over the next five years. And because of the density of resorts and vacation rentals here, he says so goes Lahaina, so goes the island of Maui. It's really that economic tsunami that's yet to really come. The Maui Economic Development Board says about 70% of every dollar generated on Maui comes from tourism. Patel says while it has long fed the economy here, it's also driven up living costs for workers. Maui is not in a position to divorce from its tourism-based economy, he says, but could strike a better balance for local residents. We give a five-star experience, I feel, to visitors in Hawaii, in Maui especially. The return back to the community from meeting some of their basic needs hasn't been five-star. He says the disaster presents an opportunity. Right now is not the time for small change. It's the time for, like, big, drastic changes that are going to be shifts for generations to come. And Maui can be the model for that. One model that you hear a lot of chatter about is turning to what's called regenerative tourism. Here's how Maui Mayor Richard Bisson explains it. I think the mindset is more of being a guest rather than a tourist. And let me give you the difference. You folks live in your homes and you have friends that come to your home and they come over as guests and they treat your home a certain way or else you wouldn't let them in your home. Advocates say regenerative tourism would be less extractive and instead focus on the rich culture, history and environment here. For instance, volunteering to reforest the landscape or restore cultural artifacts. Mayor Bisson says while those longer-term plans are discussed, the recovery itself can help fuel the economy in the short term. We're going to have a lot of construction work. 
just to rebuild what we lost. So I'm not saying that's going to replace tourism. I'm just saying that's the reality. We will be building and rebuilding. And that should obviously bring money into the economy, provide jobs. Hey, aloha. 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 I'm Kuhio. Kuhio Lewis is CEO of the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement. He walks into a strip mall storefront that his group has converted into a classroom. So we're at, now at the Workforce Development Programs. Here, he says, people who lost their livelihoods to the fires can now get certified to work in the cleanup. Debris removal got underway three weeks ago. It's people that are going to help take the ashes out of Lahaina. So in order to do that, you need these certifications. A commercial truck driver's license, for instance, or occupational safety programs offered at no cost. The goal here is to provide Maui residents with the tools that they need to be part of their own solution. You know, rather than outside mainland corporations or workers coming to take these jobs. As many here, 40-year-old Lewis also thinks the long-term solution is embracing regenerative tourism, something he says would take Hawaii back to its roots, especially the burned-out heart of Lahaina, the one-time capital of the Hawaiian kingdom. Lewis thinks the current model is a threat to the island's long-term future as more people make the painful decision to leave Maui altogether. They're thinking about their quality of life, they're thinking about their future generations, and it's still unclear as to what's going to happen. So you can't blame them if they want to move. Lewis says that's why the focus now should be on how to keep people home as Maui rebuilds. Debbie Elliott, NPR News, Lahaina. The story was produced by Marisa Peñalosa. Later today on NPR's All Things Considered, we have an update on the housing crisis in Maui. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition. For the first time, Mexico has overtaken China as the leading source of goods imported to the U.S. We'll look at what's behind the shift. It's 8.29. Coming to City Space on Friday, February 16th, a Valentine's Day edition of the Mortified podcast. It'll feature true stories of teen angst told live by the adults who went through them. Tickets are at WBUR.org events. WBUR supporters include La Cuchara Restaurants and Food Truck, helping you rev up your corporate and private events. Online booking available at lacuchara.com and Boston Children's Museum, where families play and create together. Make your winter special with a visit to the museum. bostonchildrensmuseum.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The U.S. Supreme Court hears arguments today on whether former President Donald Trump's name can appear on Colorado's presidential primary ballot. Trump appealed to the nation's high court after the state Supreme Court ruled Trump was ineligible. In a 4-3 to three vote in December, the state Supreme Court decided Trump's actions leading up to the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol amounted to insurrection. Trump is on the ballot in today's Republican presidential caucus in Nevada. At stake are 26 delegates. Trump did not take part in the state's GOP primary two days ago. 
As NPR's Ashley Lopez reports, this week's dueling GOP contests in Nevada have left some voters there confused. Austin Vic showed up to a polling location in Las Vegas Tuesday and was frustrated to find Trump was nowhere on the ballot. Instead, he learned he'd have to go to the polls again on Thursday in order to cast his vote for Trump. That's who I'd be voting for. I don't want to vote for any other candidate. So, you know, but we, now we got to go to another process. But, you know, whatever we have to do. Vic, along with a majority of Nevada Republicans, voted for the option none of these candidates in Tuesday's primary. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. The U.S. military says all five Marines aboard a helicopter that went down in the mountains of Southern California this week were killed. Confirmation came a short time ago. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Rockton Hospital plans to reopen in the spring. Parent company Signature Healthcare made the announcement yesterday on the first anniversary of a fire that shut the hospital down. The fire destroyed most of the hospital's electrical wiring. Officials say supply chain issues delayed reopening. A Republican congresswoman is pushing Harvard University for more documents as part of an inquiry into anti-Semitism on campus. North Carolina Representative Virginia Fox says the school's response to the probe is inadequate and obstructive. Harvard officials tell the Boston Globe they're cooperating with congressional requests. Fox previously threatened to subpoena the university as part of the investigation. Nonprofits on the Cape and Islands say in the last six months, they've helped about 90 young people experiencing homelessness. Those are people under the age of 25. The effort is part of Barnstable County's new program to address youth homelessness. Dan Gray is the program manager. He says the county wants to do more outreach with schools to help those students who are affected. That may have confided in a trusted teacher or a coach uh, that they had no place to stay that night. And what we have heard from young people is when they experienced that, nobody in some of the school systems or the close people that they connected with had an immediate tie-in to some of those resources. Gray adds the Cape also has a much higher percentage of young people who are couch surfing compared to the rest of the state. He adds that makes it harder to identify those who don't have stable housing. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners. And by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. It was a home win last night for the Celtics. They beat the Atlanta Hawks by eight points. Final score was 125 to 117. The Bruins have another home game tonight. They skate with the Vancouver Canucks at seven. Highs in the mid-40s today under sunny skies. It falls to the upper 20s tonight and clouds and fog move in. The fog may last through mid-morning tomorrow, otherwise mostly cloudy with highs near 50. It's 32 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan. Focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from Heather Sturt-Hega and Paul G. Hega, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Fadel. 
Pakistanis are headed to the polls today, and it's quite an endeavor. Yeah, this is one of the most populous nations on earth. So here are some of the numbers. Tens of millions of people will be eligible to vote at more than 90,000 polling stations, guarded by more than 700,000 police officers and soldiers who are needed because dozens of people have been killed in bombings and attacks in the hours leading up to the election. NPR's Dia Hadid joins us now. She covers Pakistan from her base in Mumbai. Hi, Dia. Hi, Layla. So, a big election for a big country. How is it going so far? Well, we have only a somewhat shaky picture because authorities have disrupted cellular services, citing security concerns, mm. you know, as you mentioned, because there's been these deadly attacks on polling booths and candidates. And militant attacks like this have really been on the rise in the past two years. But rights groups worry that there might be a more nefarious purpose because mm. there was a crackdown ahead of these elections that targeted Imran Khan, who's arguably Pakistan's most popular leader. He's the former PM. He was ousted from power after he fell out with the military, and that's Pakistan's most powerful institution. Okay, Imran Khan, former cricket player turned populist politician, but I understand he's not even on the ballot today, right? That's right. He's not on the ballot. He's in prison, serving multiple sentences. His party isn't even allowed to participate in the polls. And yet these elections are still very much about him. His mm. party has tried to work around these obstacles. His allies are running as independents. Chatbots tell citizens who to vote for in the elections. They're running campaign rallies on TikTok. And they're using generative AI to create Khan-like personas to use on social media where he urges his base to vote. One of Khan's allies, Taymur Jagra, explained it to me like this. What we've had is AI-generated messages of Imran Khan so that in the absence of Imran Khan's pictures, Imran Khan's voice being deliberately taken away from the people, that it acts as a source of motivation to his voters. Okay, so AI-generated messages of Khan are being used. He's not on the ballot. Is this actually working? It seems so. Video messaging is key in Pakistan because literacy rates are really low. And this is an appeal to young voters. They're a huge block. They get their information from social media and they're a key base uh, for Khan's party. And so in Pakistan's second largest city, Lahore, most people we've spoken to say that they are voting for independence aligned with Khan. Some folks are even warning each other on WhatsApp groups that if they don't go to vote, someone else will fill in their ballot for them. But it's hard to imagine Khan's allies returning to government in any form because the army is so opposed to Khan. So Khan, it seems pretty clear he's not going to be the prime minister. So who might be? The analysts I've been speaking to expect a different former prime minister to come to power. His name is Nawaz Sharif. One analyst, Niaz Murtaza, tells me he expects to see a governing coalition that's weak and easily swayed by the military. It's going to be a really hobbled uh, government with the army running the show from behind. But here's the thing. Pakistani politics is cyclical. Today's jailed politician is tomorrow's favourite. So one ally of Khan tells me even if they're excluded from power in this election cycle, they're going to watch and wait because they know how Pakistan operates. That's NPR's Dia Hadid. Thanks, Dia. Thank you, Leila. Donald Trump is expected to sweep the Republican caucus in Nevada tonight. He'll win all the state's delegates on his way to the likely Republican presidential nomination. This follows Joe Biden's win in Nevada's Democratic primary on Tuesday. 
The big contest in Nevada comes in November, when that state will once again be among six or so swing states most likely to decide the general election. Latino voters play a role in Nevada, and some have been talking to A. Martinez, who's been there all week, joins us from Reno. Hey there, A. Hey, Steve. So when we talk about winning elections, how important are Latinos in Nevada? Yeah, they are. Uh, Latinos account for about one in five voters in Nevada. They're important Democrats. So Joe Biden needed them in 2020. And Republicans would like a little of that magic, too. I was here in downtown Reno standing next to a beautiful flowing river right by my hotel. I met with uh, Fred Locken, a professor of political science at Truckee Meadows Community College. And he says, while the influence of Nevada's Latinos is growing, it's not quite strong enough yet to swing an election. So far, it's a potential, not a reality. Not enough are voting at this point in time to make the kind of splash that they will make in the future. We will be the first state to become a majority of minorities in just a couple of years, and the Hispanic bloc will be by far the largest. Okay, so an important constituency now, even more important in the future. And what are you hearing from them as you go around the state? Well, Steve, you know, when you want to talk to people who are hungry to talk politics, you go where they are hungry, and that's uh, a food court at the Meadowood Mall. I met uh, Walfred Alvarez. He's Guatemalan, works in a warehouse, and is a Trump backer. So he's saying he thinks that Democrats always say one thing and then do another. On the other hand, he says Republicans don't make such a fuss, but they do what they promise. And I asked Professor Locken about whether Republicans are really winning over Latinos here in Nevada, as they like to claim, and he said it's true to an extent. Uh, He doesn't think, though, overall that Republicans have the policy positions right now to attract Latinos as much as Democrats do. What else are you hearing from some Latino voters there? So I camped out at the Reno Public Market. I talked to uh, Ilona Smith-Martinez. She manages one of the bars there. Everyone calls her low. She votes, but she's not excited about doing it right now. And she has this message for the politicians that she sees constantly going at each other. Knock off the crap. Really think about the people, the little people, and the people that are really, like, we're working and we're, like, paycheck to paycheck and, like, in this crazy, crazy, crazy economy. I also talked to uh, Sebastian Velasquez. He's 18, he's a cashier at the market. He's going to be voting for the first time in November. Hmm. And he's just like a lot of the other voters, Steve, that I spoke to this week. They're uninspired with the choices they have. So I asked him if he wishes there were younger people to vote for. Definitely. I get how they're older or whatever, because, you know, Biden, he was like the youngest senator, I'm pretty sure. And 50 years later, now he's finally become president. I just wish we had younger people to speak for us because I've seen like congressional hearings of the TikTok CEOs, Snapchat CEOs, and the questions they ask. There's a disconnect between the youth and the government, I feel, and I wish it could be addressed with new stars slash politicians. Now, Biden's actually the sixth youngest senator, Steve, but you can hear his point. He thinks, for the most part, our elected leaders are kind of how I feel, Steve, just too old. What are some things you hear from Latino voters specifically about immigration, which is all over the news? It all depends, Steve, on what their personal life story has been. So for an immigrant that has gone through the process to come to the United States and become a citizen, they maybe feel more connected to the Republican point of view uh, when it comes to immigration. But for the kids of immigrants that have grown up here and that maybe feel differently, the Democratic position is the one that they more align with, uh, wanting to be more uh, sensitive to uh, the plight of immigrants as they come over the border. Our colleague Abe Martinez in Reno, Nevada, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. This is NPR News. 
Listen for live coverage later this morning as the Supreme Court hears arguments about whether Donald Trump can be banned from the primary ballot in Colorado. Coverage starts at 945 on WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report delves into data out from the Commerce Department this week about the U.S.'s shifting trade situation. Mexico outpaced China as America's top source of imports for the first time in 20 years. Mostly sunny in mid-40s today, increasing clouds in upper 30s tonight. Fog to start tomorrow. It'll be mostly cloudy with a high near 50. It's 33 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Our Time on Earth. Featuring creative collaborations from 12 countries, this exhibition uses immersive digital artworks and natural materials to reimagine the future of our planet. Visit on February 17th for opening day art making and events. Learn more at PEM.org. Norwell-based Clean Harbors plans to buy a North Carolina environmental and emergency response company. The $400 million purchase of Hepico will bring 1,000 more employees to the company. The company says the acquisition will save them money and expand where it offers services. One of the largest life sciences employers in Massachusetts is supporting its employees diagnosed with cancer or other illnesses. A new program from Sanofi will secure the job, salary, and benefits of an employee for up to a year. They're also implementing flexible work arrangements for people needing care. The company says it'll offer extra emotional support for employees as well. Lord Hobo Brewing is canceling its plans to expand to Somerville. The new tap room was slated to open at the former Once Ballroom location. Lord Hobo officials tell the Boston Globe they plan to focus on their Seaport and Woburn locations. It's 844. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. The U.S. has dropped dozens of airstrikes in Yemen to stop Houthi rebels from attacking ships in the Red Sea. So far, it hasn't worked. Unfortunately, the airstrikes cause uh, fear among civilians. However, they should continue what they are doing, supporting the Palestinian case. That story on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again after 4 today on 90.9 WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Fadel. For the first time in more than two decades, Mexico has become the top source of goods imported to the U.S., beating out China, according to new government data. Joining us now to discuss all this is Mark Zandi, Moody's Analytics Chief Economist. Good morning. Good morning, Leila. So, Mark, what's behind this shift that has Americans buying more stuff from Mexico over China? A bunch of stuff. Uh, I think I'd put at the top of the list the very vexed relationship between China and the United States, dating back all the way to President Trump when he first imposed tariffs on China. That was back in 2018. And of course, tariffs mean higher prices for the goods that we're importing. Consumers pull back on spending on those items because of the higher cost. Pandemic also has played a role. It kind of laid bare 
the fact that our supply chains aren't very resilient. And so companies have worked pretty hard to bring those supply chains back closer to home. And of course, Mexico is a lot closer than uh, China. And then the pandemic also scrambled our uh, spending patterns. Uh, we spent a lot of money on stuff back early on in the pandemic when we were sheltering in place. You know, that was stuff from China and everywhere else. Mm -hmm. But more recently, we've stopped buying those things because we're out traveling, going to restaurants, going to ball games. And China's gotten hurt more because they produce a lot of the consumer goods that, that we bought during the teeth of the pandemic, but aren't buying now. Okay. So a lot of layers there, but it sounds like one of the chief reasons is this difficult relationship between the U.S. and China. So what does this say about that relationship going forward? Well, I don't think there's any way to take this back. If there's one thing that Democrats and Republicans can agree on, it's that they're uncomfortable with the relationship with China. You know, President Trump imposed the tariffs, President Biden continued with those. And of course, President Trump is talking about even higher tariffs. And that the trade relationship is only part of the, the problems that people have with China it's related to cybersecurity and intellectual property rights and uh, access to markets. So, and the, the whole relationship is taking on its own dynamic at this point mm. to, the, to the point that we're all pulling apart, the so-called decoupling. So I, I really don't see our relationship with China moving in a direction where it means more trade. So it feels like we're going to be importing less from China going forward. What does that mean for China? It's going to be tough on China. You know, the U.S. and China are big trading partners. We export and import a lot of stuff. But as a share of our economy, trade is, is actually pretty small. Uh, you know, we are more domestically oriented. It's all about the American consumer. That mm. is what drives the economic train here. But in China, trade is really important to that economy. It's a big part of their economy. So, you know, the, the, the fact that we're pulling away from each other uh, is uh, diminishing both our economies, uh, but it's doing a lot more damage to the Chinese economy. So this government data that we're referencing you here, I mean, how accurate of a picture is it? Yeah, good point, Layla. I mean, you know, all data uh, has its problems and its warts. And, you know, clearly uh, because of the tariffs, you know, the Chinese are uh, trying to work around that. So they're shipping goods to other parts of the world that find their way into the U.S. and aren't counted as imports from, from China. But, but you know, um, despite the, the data problems, uh, the, the, the message is clear here. Uh, we're going to be importing less from China going forward. We're decoupling. That's Mark Zandi, chief economist of Moody's Analytics. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll tell us how Russia's electoral authority has banned the only anti-war candidate from standing against President Putin in next month's election. It's 849. WBUR supporters include Thought Forum's Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes and spaces that bring people together. Supporting Nens's John Ogden Youth and introductory programming. Learn more at thoughtforms-corp.com and nensa.net. Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that help you think more deeply about the world. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England and your support of WBUR will enrich the lives of thousands of listeners in Boston and beyond. 
order by midnight tomorrow to save 10% on all four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken meets with Israeli officials today in his push for a ceasefire deal. U.S. military officials have confirmed the deaths of five Marines who went missing after their helicopter went down in Southern California. And voters in Pakistan head to the polls today for elections amid recent political violence. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month. New benefits for 2024. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. Mid-40s and mostly sunny today, near 30 tonight, and it'll grow increasingly cloudy and foggy. Foggy to start tomorrow, then mostly cloudy and near 50. It's 33 degrees in Boston. The Walt Disney Company realizes video games are big after all. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Wall Street Journal's The Future of Everything, a weekly podcast that covers the breakthroughs that could transform lives. New episodes available every Friday. I'm David Brancaccio. There's news Disney is partnering with Epic Games. That's the creator of the popular Fortnite video game. Disney is taking a $1.5 billion stake in the company in an effort to grow at a time when its traditional businesses think linear old-school television and films have been struggling. Marketplace's Nova Safo is here with more. Well, David, what you can expect in the not-too-distant future is video games made by Epic, featuring characters and stories from Disney's various franchises, including Marvel superheroes, Star Wars, and Avatar. Now, this has the markings of Disney's deal more than 20 years ago with Pixar. Disney signed up Pixar to make a bunch of animated movies. And then when Bob Iker was CEO, Disney bought Pixar. Now, there are also a lot of differences between then and now, but you can see where Iger is dusting off a previous play. Mm. And Disney shut down its own video game division back in 2016. What's the attraction to that business now? Well, I think you know the answer as well as I do. We've been reporting video games are a big growth area, and Disney's looking around for growth. Its film and TV business has been flagging, and its one-time cash cow ESPN is struggling too. And here's another element of the timing. Uh, The quarterly results that Disney just put out yesterday, which included this announcement, are the first that allow us to fully assess Bob Iger's return as CEO. He came back in November 2022. Results Disney just reported show revenues were flat between the last quarter of 2022 and now, so He's under pressure, including from activist investors, to find growth. All right, Nova, thank you. We've been reporting this week on that new one-stop app to stream Major League Sports from Disney, Fox, Warner Brothers, Discovery. Well, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that pro sports leagues first heard about the deal about the same time we did when the first press release came out. The phrase game changer is way overused, but it's apt here regarding this still unnamed streaming app. Federal Reserve officials have been spending the week driving home the point that interest rates are unlikely to go down quickly. Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari set the tone yesterday morning when he told CNBC he only thinks the Fed will cut interest rates a few times this year, way less than investors expect. Then Fed Governor Adriana Kugler said she wants to see more progress on inflation before cutting interest rates. The Fed has been keeping rates high to dampen demand and cool inflation. Next, Boston Fed President Susan Collins said it'll probably be appropriate to start easing rates later this year 
after there's more evidence that inflation is slowing. Richmond Fed President Tom Barkin wrapped up the day saying the Fed should take its time with rate cuts because of all the economic uncertainty right now. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genser for Marketplace. While Dow futures are up slightly now, S&P and NASDAQ futures are both down one-tenth of a percent. We'll see if the S&P goes above 5,000 for the first time today. It's close. For the first time, according to the EU's climate service Copernicus, the world's average temperature has risen more than one and a half degrees Celsius over 12 months. 1.5 C is the target. The Paris Climate Accord was designed for this not to happen. Here's the BBC's Justin Rowlett. What this is showing is that we're nudging really close to that important symbolic boundary, and that is already having consequences around the world, and we should be worried about it. What's interesting is when you look into the detail of the figures, just how extreme the temperatures have been. Every single one of the last eight months has been the hottest month ever recorded. A new daily sea temperature record has been set every single day since late April, and that just shows you how unusual this last last 12-month period has been. BBC's climate editor, Justin Rowlett. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. Progressive is looking for individuals who want to join an inclusive and unique culture. More information, including application, at progressive.com slash careers. I don't want to steal my colleague Justin Ho's lead here, but China has been supplanted as the number one exporter to the United States. New numbers from the Commerce Department show that imports to the U.S. fell overall last year. China imports down 20 percent from a year earlier. Here's Justin. A big reason why trade with China was down last year is that people just aren't buying as many of the kinds of goods that China is known for making. Computers, cell phones, furniture, desks. Mary Lovely is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. And so as consumers turn away from them, naturally our imports of those goods from China will fall. Another reason is that it hasn't exactly been easy to import from China over the last few years. First, there was the trade war that started during the Trump administration. Then supply chains got all congested during the pandemic. Robert Johnson, a professor at the University of Notre Dame, says companies have been rethinking whether trade with China is worth it. There's been a movement in general towards moving production stages to countries that have more secure access to the U.S. market. Those include Vietnam, Canada and Mexico. Last year, the U.S. bought more goods from Mexico than China for the first time in more than 20 years. Johnson says Mexico has been supplying a lot of auto parts and steel, also products that China makes too, including electronics. The rising importance of Mexico as a source of electronics for the U.S. leads me to believe that that's a symptom of reorienting of consumer electronics supply chains. That doesn't necessarily mean that China is out of the picture. A recent paper by Harvard and Dartmouth economists found that Chinese companies have been investing more in Mexico and Vietnam. Megan Schoenberger, senior economist with KPMG, says that could be a way for those companies to indirectly send goods to the U.S. market. Maybe they'll export somewhere else. It'll get assembled in Mexico or they'll add a portion of it and then it can be exported to the U.S. without carrying the cost of those tariffs. Either way, Schoenberger says we shouldn't expect the prices of those goods to come down quickly, even when they're coming from countries with lower trade barriers. That's because moving supply chains around isn't cheap. It's not as if you can pick up your manufacturing plant and move it somewhere else. That takes time. It costs investment. And that, Schoenberger says, could put pressure on prices in the short term. I'm Justin Howe for Marketplace. 
And the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office says the gap between what the government spends and what it takes in will be about 7% smaller than the forecast they put out last year, although that's through the next nine years. Ten years from now, the deficit will be $2.6 trillion, up from $1.6 trillion now. And by then, just paying interest on the debt will be much higher than all other spending. Beyond all debt service, drivers of this highlighted by the CEO are an aging population paying less tax as they move out of prime working years and the cost of federally paid health care. This also assumes the Trump-era tax cuts will expire on schedule. It's Marketplace Morning Report from APM, American Public Media. Clear skies today. Temperatures will be in the mid-40s. Clouds move in tonight as it falls to around 30. Then our Friday starts out foggy. That'll last through about mid-morning. Otherwise, it'll be mostly cloudy and near 50. It's 33 degrees in Boston, and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.